It's good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, If we haven't met, my name is Tony. I have the privilege of being able to serve here on staff at Wellspring. Now, I want to start with uh, an interesting study I read this last week. So this study came out of Harvard and Virginia, and the researchers did this interesting thing. They they took, basically, they asked uh, participants, it was a bunch of guys, they asked them to spend 15 minutes alone in a room. It's the basis of the experiment. No phone, no magazine, no book, whatever. Just 15 minutes alone. And then they also, before they sent him into the room, they asked him this thing. They said, okay, if you could pay to avoid uh, an electric shock, would you? And they're like, of course I would pay. All right, that's the basis of the experiment. Ask the question, send him into the room. Now, the one thing they do when they send him in the room is now they put a machine that electrically shocks you into the room. All these people go in, sit for 15 minutes. What do they find? They find this. Two-thirds of the men that were sent into this room to be alone for 15 minutes self-administered an electric shock rather than sitting by themselves alone and doing nothing for 15 minutes. The sheer tedium of being alone, they're like, I would have paid to avoid electric shock. Now I will give myself an electric shock just to avoid being alone with myself for 15 minutes. Now you might be wondering, why start there? What does this have to do with the spiritual life? What does this have to do with practicing the way of Jesus? Well, this is basically my premise, right? That if we can't slow down a little bit for 15 minutes to be alone with ourselves. My guess is that's probably going to impact our ability to slow down and be present without distraction with God. It's probably going to impact our ability to slow down and be present with God and becoming to become a people of prayer. Pascal, brilliant dude, 17th century mathematician, theologian, once said this. He said, all human evil comes from a single cause. Man's inability to be still in a room. Now, I'm not sure I totally agree with Pascal here. But I do think that our inability to slow down, to be alone with God, impacts not only our personal connection with God, but also limits our blessing in the world. Now, if you were with us last week, you'll know Aaron talked about this idea of Abraham being called to be a blessing to the world. And he talked about how Abraham's not called to be a container that sort of contains the blessing just for himself, but a conduit, a means of blessing in the world. And what I want to explore this morning is actually the place of prayer in the process of us blessing the world. We're going to begin in Genesis 18. The text says that the Lord appeared to Abraham. And then it says that three men appeared in front of Abraham. And now, full disclosure, theologians have tried to figure out what is going on in Genesis 18 for a very long time. Is it the Trinity? Is it God with some angels? Is it three people? What's happening? Well, Aaron and I are going to deal with this a little more fully 
in cutting room floor this week. For now, let's just uh, suspend our assumptions a little bit and just say the Lord is here and so are these three guys. Now, they show up at Abraham's house. He welcomes them in. They eat together, right? They talk about God's promise to Abraham that he and Sarah are going to have a child. And through this child, they're going to form a nation and this nation will bless the world. And then as they're getting up to leave, we get some insight into maybe an additional reason to why they have come. Genesis 18, 16, it says, Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them and to set them on their way. Right? So what you have is the author inviting us to sort of get up, get up from the table with these three men and Abraham, walk with them, and look out towards Sodom with the four of them. And then something really interesting happens. We're actually invited into God's mind for a second. As he talks to himself or the other two guys, we're not totally sure, about whether to involve Abraham in what he plans to do or not. It's really interesting. He says this, Genesis 18, 17 through 19. The Lord said right, to himself, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I've chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. There's a lot here. I just want to highlight two things. First, while God does sort of theoretically ask whether he should include Abraham in his plan, it's not like God is like flipping a coin, like yes or no, should I include him? Right? This is actually here for our benefit. It's a way to communicate to us as we read this story that God has a choice and God intentionally, purposefully chooses to include Abraham in his plan and us. Right? And this fits with the general flow of Genesis up to this point. Genesis 1, God chooses to make humankind his image bearers in the world. He gives them a purpose. Right? If you contrast this with other Mesopotamian creation stories where humans are slaves, you start to see this difference emerge. We're meant to partner with God. Genesis 2, Adam is asked to tend and keep the garden. He's given work. He's given purpose. He's included in God's plan. Genesis 6, right? Noah is included in this decreation story. And then we get to Genesis 12. God calls Abraham, right? He includes him in his plan. Through Abraham, he wants to bless the world. God consistently invites people invites us to partner with him in what he's doing in the world. Two, and this is really important, but something I think we miss sometimes reading this. God is calling Abraham, right? And he's calling Abraham to become a community and a family. And that through this communal and familial understanding, bless the world. Right? God wants Abraham to create a community devoted to his way. Verse 19, hey, Abraham, you practice my way. Now teach the next generation to practice my way that you might embody my justice and righteousness in the world. 
Notice he doesn't tell Abraham, hey, just believe the right things, Abraham. He calls him to practice his way, right? Pass it on to the next generation. I have to say, honestly, in my early following of Jesus, I was even taught, right? Like, you know, it's all about grace. And there's a deep, deep truth there that I don't want to, like, undermine. Right? I can't save myself by what I do, by reading the Bible, attending church, whatever. But I think there was also a disconnection in some ways between how our actions affect our formation, even if they're not connected to our salvation. Because over the years, I've learned something else. While I can't save myself through my actions or my behaviors, my behaviors, right, what I do also do profoundly affect my heart. Dallas Willard once wrote, grace is opposed to earning, not to effort. There's a difference. 2 Peter 1, Peter writes, make every effort in your life with God. Right? Abraham is created and called by God's grace. God makes promises to Abraham because God is gracious. And in response to that grace, God is calling and inviting Abraham to walk in God's way and pass it along. And right, in Abra as Abraham does this, the idea is that he becomes more like God. He bears God's image more faithfully in the world and as a result becomes a more powerful conduit of God's blessing in the world. And it's within this frame of partnership, right, inviting Abraham to be a part of what he's doing in the world, that God tells Abraham what he's about to do. Genesis 18, 20 to 21. And then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to be. If not, I will know. All right, really big picture. God basically tells Abraham, hey, Abraham, I've been listening. Since the flood, as people have been spreading out, I've been listening, I've been paying attention. And I've heard this outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. The text says, right, that their sin is both great and grave. It's serious, and there's a lot of it. So God says, I am going to go down and I'm going to check it out. And he says, if not, I will know, right? If it's not as bad as I've heard, right, I'll know. But there seems to be implied in this text that if it is as bad as I've heard, I will judge it. Now, we do, it doesn't say this directly, but based on Abraham's response, it is assumed. And I think the truth is, for many of us, we feel a little whiplash here. God is the God of blessing. He's going to bless the nations. Yes, I love it. God is the God also of judgment. And we feel this tension. Right? Bless the world, but now he's judging it? I think for some of us, this makes us feel really uncomfortable. 
Right? We have this interesting tension, I think, in our culture right now, particularly on the West Coast, particularly in California. We have this desire in general for justice. And we have a hesitancy to let God be the one to execute that justice. Have you noticed that? In our culture, particularly on the West Coast, particularly in secularism, right? As long as we have control over what that justice looks like, we're all for it. As long as the justice is out there and doesn't implicate us, we're all for it. I actually think our response to God's judgment is actually a pretty, has a significant uh, reflection on our social context. Let me explain. Often, when you travel the world, talk to people who live in way more violent and less stable parts of the world, they actually a desire a God who executes justice. You know, through my 20s and through my 30s, I traveled a lot. Um, I don't, I don't, people ask me how many countries, I don't really know, right around 50. So let's say I've been to 50 countries. I can tell you that in almost all of them, most people are not concerned. They would not read this story and be concerned about a God who executes justice in the world. It's primarily in places like the United States and Western Europe where people are edu particularly educated and particularly affluent that we start to have this sense of real discomfort with God, be the one, God being the one who actually executes justice. For instance, there's this theologian, Christian theologian named Miroslav Volf. In his book, Exclusion and Gra Embrace, he talks about living in Croatia during a season of intense instability, injustice, and violence. And for Volf, right, theologian, who writes in this book, right, he has experienced the discomfort and the injustice of this world. And he writes that a God who doesn't address injustice is not a God worth worshiping. What's interesting is this is almost the exact opposite of how we often feel reading a text like this. We hear about God maybe judging a place and we wonder, hmm, can we worship that God? I think our social context has us prize things like stability, has us prize, right, making sure that we can control our environment. And God, the great X factor, right, is greatly upsetting if he has a perspective that's different than ours. But I think actually Wolf's perspective is way closer to Abraham's context. Just a few chapters back, Abraham's, uh, you know, Lot's family, Lot and his family are actually kidnapped by warlords. And Abraham has to basically rise up, raise up a militia to go and rescue them back. Abraham lives in this context of great instability and potential violence. And as the story unfolds, what we see is that like God's take on what is happening in Sodom and Gomorrah is not like this small, little, trivial thing. In just a moment, right, in this story, the two men who eat at Abraham's house, who later we learn are angels, actually go to Sodom. 
and the men of Sodom, upon their arrival, attempt to violently and sexually assault them, to rape them. And the story suggests this isn't like a one-time thing. This is what the men of Sodom do when people arrive. And it's horrible. Now, as a quick aside, I just want to say, too often in the contemporary church, uh, we actually make God's judgment of Sodom about men having sex with men. And I just want to say, I actually don't think that's the point of this text. There are other biblical texts that shed light on that and can really speak into it, but I actually don't think Genesis 19 is one of them. Genesis 19 is primarily about this sort of perpetuation of violence. And according to the Bible itself, in Ezekiel 16, the prophet writes, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. Right? So according to the Bible itself, what we see is that Sodom is judged because of its violence, particularly these, this sort of propensity towards sexual assault, and its luxury without giving thought to the poor and needy, right? And this is what God is hearing, right? He hears the cries of the needy and those who have been assaulted. The sound of their suffering has reached the ears of God. And he sends these two men, these two angels, to go check it out, right? And then he ends with, right, if not, I will know. I will know if what I'm hearing is correct, which is interesting, right? He's God. He already knows. So what is he doing here? I think he's inviting Abraham into a conversation. I think he's creating space for the conversation. Prayer almost always is a continuing the conversation that God has already started. Right? God reveals something to us. It affects us on some level. Right? And then we turn to him and talk to him about it. This is exactly what happens here. God reveals his plan to Abraham. Abraham is affected, though he's affected differently than us. Right? Abraham is affected not that God is judging evil. What he is bothered by is that maybe good people, righteous people are going to be swept along away. They are going to be injured in the process of God's judging, which is a little different. And then what does he do? He talks to God about it. Genesis 18, 23 to 26. Will you, this is Abraham speaking to God, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there's 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked? Far be that from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Right, and then Abraham works his way down from 50 to 45 to 40 to 30 to 20 to 10. And at each stage, God says, right, for the sake of the righteous, he will not destroy the city. There's a ton going on here. I want to highlight three things. 
First, and I think we know this, but I think we forget this. What this story is telling us is that God is a relational and personal being. He's not like some universal force or akin to fate. Right? He's a being with which we can ask questions, with which we can dialogue. Which is kind of wild if you think about it. Right? The creator of the universe is asking and inviting his creature into a dialogue about his plan for how to rule the world. The truth is, sometimes I actually don't pray about things, particularly things out there, things about other people or other countries, things going on in the world, because I just wonder, why does God care what I think? I'm just a little creature living on Granite Street in a little place called Pacific Grove. Why does he care about my opinion? But as I've studied this text, I'm starting to wonder whether sometimes in deferring to God and not praying because, you know, he just knows better than me, obviously. In deferring my way out of prayer, if I am actually sidestepping the will of God, which involves me. God didn't need to include Abraham. He chose to. He doesn't need to include you or me. But maybe he actually wants us more involved than we are because he wants to be in conversation with us. Two, God even allows Abraham, his creature, right, made on day six, to question his integrity, his goodness in the ruling process. Abraham asks, right, Will not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Abraham, in this kind of like countdown conversation, is making sure that God distinguishes between good and evil. When we shift to our context, I think the problem of evil, the problem of suffering, maybe undermines more faith in the church than any other question. In my experience, what I notice is that when people in the church start wrestling with the problem of evil, the problem of suffering, what often happens, if people aren't really careful, is they start to gradually drift from the church, drift from community, and eventually stop talking with God at all. And I think Genesis 18 is instructive here because notice what Abraham doesn't do. He doesn't only focus on the evil of Sodom and give up on God. I mean, horrific things are happening in Sodom. He doesn't say, man, God, I give up. Instead, he turns his attention to God. He talks with God about his concerns about Sodom, about the fate of the righteous and the good in that place. And what's fascinating, as Genesis 19 unfolds, what we get to see is how the author interprets Abraham's prayer and actually how it influences and impacts God's plan. One, 
Abraham was thinking in these very either-or terms, right? Like, people are going to be either spared or judged. And then he goes into conversation with that assumption with God, like, God, are you going to judge or spare? What are you going to do? But what does God actually do? He spares Lot and judges Sodom and Gomorrah, which Abraham clearly didn't seem to even imagine as a possibility, that God could do both, both spare and judge. Two, note that Abraham prayed, this is verse 1823, or chapter 1823, will the righteous be swept away with the wicked? Right? That's his question to God. And then in Genesis 19, verses 15 and 17, the, the angels, they warn Lot and his family to leave the city. And this is the quote, right? Lest you be swept away, exact same word, on account of the iniquity of the city. I think this is the author's way of telling us, right, that Abraham, kind of like a consultant, shared his perspective in prayer. It was then adopted by the Lord passed on to the angels or the messengers who then communicate it to Lot. That his prayer actually did make a difference. In fact, the narrator explicitly tells us that Lot's rescue was an answer to Abraham's prayer in Genesis 19.29. And God remembered Abraham and sent Lot from the midst of the destruction of the cities where Lot lived. Right? The Lord remembered Abraham's prayer. Not for Lot specifically, but for the righteous. And I think it's really important here that we note, right, Abraham doesn't have to convince God. He doesn't have to change his mind. Like, Abraham is a peacemaking child in a dysfunctional family trying to calm dad down. If you've been a peacemaking child in a dysfunctional family, you know that, like, fear. And sometimes... When we have that experience, we, have, we assume that God is like that. But that is not what the text is saying. The text says in Genesis 19, 16, that it is the Lord's mercy and compassion, not Abraham's convincing, that leads to Lot's rescue. Right? And this is foundational to our understanding of God's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. God is merciful. But he also doesn't think that the violent abuse in Sodom should go on without consequence. Right? And if you flip to the New Testament, you see there's actually continuity here between Jesus and the God that's pictured in Genesis 18 and 19. Right? Often we think of Jesus in these like soft, friendly terms like, oh, love your enemies, oh, we love Jesus, and the God of the Old Testament, oh, he's angry, you know, he's punishing. This is actually a caricature and it's not at all true. God, through Abraham, Aaron talked about this last week, he actually blesses his enemies, the Babylonians, that he scatters in Genesis 11, right, through Abraham. His whole is to bless, goal is to bless the nations who are the scattered Babylonians of the Tower of Babel, right? He is going to bless them through Abraham, who also happens to be a Babylonian, right? The God of the Old Testament blesses his enemies. And if you flip forward to the New Testament, Right? Jesus consistently judges those who perpetuate injustice or stand back and do nothing for the poor. The reason Ezekiel gives for Sodom's judgment. This is Jesus' words in Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. 
right, for Jesus, a God who does not stand against and fight injustice is not a God who brings blessing. Right, in this connection between justice and blessing, the character of God and our role in the process are really central themes in Genesis 18 and 19. And then the question is, how does this then translate into our everyday life? You know, fast forward however many thousands of years right, under the peninsula or wherever you live. Right, how does this text shape our practice? Right, how does this text inform how we relate to God? And specifically, I want to talk about sort of our role as conduits of blessing and how that is connected to prayer. Let's start with a story. A few weeks ago, one of you kind of shyly came up to me after our outdoor service, and you asked me, right, if we could have a weekly time to pray about our church, about the community, and about the world. And can we create this time where you and I can pray? And I, honestly, my first reaction was, I'm not sure if I have time. But that didn't feel like a very spiritual answer. So I turned around and said, you know, well, let me pray about it. And as I left that conversation, what I realized was that God was inviting me, not just to pray, but to reconsider, re approach, what it means to be faithful, right? Because if that same person had said, you know, Tony, I think there's a really practical injustice that we could address on the peninsula. Maybe that there's an obvious incidence of elderly abuse that we could address or an obvious incidence of racism that we could oppose. They had said, hey, can we meet once a week for the next few weeks and try and flesh this out? And man, we would make a huge difference. If they had said that to me, I would have been like, done. When do you want to meet? And what this conversation revealed to me was that there's a part of me that disconnects prayer from God's desire for justice and his desire for us to be a blessing in the world. And the truth is you see this in Christian activism today. There's often a ton of work and focus on doing the good work of God in the world, which is awesome. But often, without a real meaningful dedication to prayer about those very things that they are working so hard to address. And it reveals this real bias, I think, in our cultural moment that I am sort of realizing I have embodied to a certain degree. This assumption that what we do matters a lot more than what God can do through prayer. feel that? N.T. Wright has this quote. It's pretty profound. Aaron sent it to me. It says this, the Christian vocation is to be in prayer. Right? Vocation is like the work. Christian vocation is to be in prayer, in the spirit, at the place where the world is in pain. 
And as we embrace that vocation, that work, right, we discover it to be the way of following Jesus, shaped according to his messianic vocation on the cross, with arms outstretched, holding on simultaneously to the pain of the world and to the love of God. The Christian vocation is to be in prayer at the place where the world is in pain. Is this how you understand what it means to practice the way of Jesus? To be a person who carries the pain of the world into the presence of Jesus. Jesus tells a story in Luke 18 about this widow who is abused by this legal system. And there's this judge who just keeps denying her what is rightfully hers. But she keeps going back to this judge. She keeps persisting. She keeps asking. And Jesus knew that sometimes we would feel like our prayers were not going to be answered. So he tells those gathered, he says, and he, as he shares this parable, he says this, no, don't lose heart. Persevere. Sometimes you're going to feel like this woman who's justly approaching a judge and being denied. Don't lose heart. And he says in Luke 18, 7 through 8, And will not God give justice to his elect, to you and to me, who cry out to him night and day? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The, the parable, Jesus, he invites us to cry out on behalf of the wrongs in the world, evil in the world, injustice in the world. When I was, um, he tells us to persevere. Right? When I was preparing this message, I asked a few people that are just people that I admire in prayer that I feel like are just way more advanced than me. I was just like, hey, can you give me some windows of perspective here. And one, one person shared this story, praying for someone in her family. And she says, sometimes we have this posture of praying for things. And she said, that's great. Sometimes we actually need to have a posture of praying through things. Not just praying once or twice, but praying until God answers the prayer, just like this woman before the judge. She's going to keep knocking on the door until God answers. Are there times when we pray through and we don't give up? And yet Jesus ends the parable with a question about whether you or me will have enough faith to keep asking. Or even ask at all. Like I just wonder, what if Jesus were to come here today, into your house, into mine, would he find faith at Wellspring? Would he find faith at Granite Street where I live? 
but he find a people who cry out to him day and night, standing in the place of the world's pain and bringing it into his presence. When I think about this in light of Genesis 18 and 19, I'm realizing that Abraham's intercession is actually an example of what it looks like to practice God's way. Genesis 18 says, this is before Abraham's prayer, says that he desires Abraham to, quote, keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. And then the story provides an example of what this looks like. Abraham prays on behalf of Sodom, telling us that if we want to practice the way of God, we cannot disconnect prayer from our practice. The truth is, like, I, you know, I look back, we had this, like, go, I had this golden opportunity this last year, our world is in chaos, everything is in chaos, I had this opportunity to pray on behalf of others, and yet I look back on this year, and I feel a little guilty, and I realize, like, just how selfish and self-focused I am, and I realize, like, man, I want to, I want to make some changes, I, I wonder if you might feel the same. Like, wow, I, I missed the boat. I've disconnected prayer from practice, and Jesus is inviting me into something more. I, want to give us, I just want to give us, as a body, three different ways that I think we can really apply this. Way one. We have three communal spaces as a church where we practice intercession. Tuesday, Zoom, 8 a.m. Thursday, in person, right here in the sanctuary, 3 p.m. Sunday, 10.30, right? Right before the outside service, people pray together outside. Those are three ways that right now you could pray with others if you don't feel like, you know, I don't know if I can do it on my own, but I'll join a few people and maybe you just show up and you're quiet, but you're trying. Awesome. Option two. And this one's more personal and individual. One thing we've been doing for, basically since we started this church plant, is this thing called Pray for Five. We're just simply like, are there five people you know that are struggling? Five people you know that are struggling and maybe haven't experienced much of Jesus, but you want them to. What would it look like to pray for those people every day? Now, I might suggest praying for one person each day and taking a little longer for each of those people. So maybe you pray for one person of your five in the morning. The reason I suggest this is basically just from my experience. Maybe, maybe your experience is different. My experience early on in intercession was that I was told to make a list of as many people I could think of or topics that I wanted to pray about and pray through that list every day. And in a few days, I actually felt like more like a prayer factory than a person talking to God. And if if you notice the story, right, Abraham doesn't say, God, be with Sodom, don't judge the righteous, and then move on to a new subject. He remains in conversation about one thing, and he just keeps asking. I just wonder if that might help us as we pray for people we already know and love in our life. Third, I think we can also pray more globally or internationally. 
right? Abraham is called to bless the world. Not just his loved ones, not just his family, his tribe, his nation. He is meant to be a conduit to blessing the entire world. And the truth is, there are tons of need in our world right now. Over the last few months, I don't know how many people at Wellspring have gotten vaccinated for COVID-19. Let's say it's 30. I read this last week. There are 130 countries in our world. That is two-thirds of the countries in our entire world that do not have one vaccinated person in them. That means our church, our tiny little church, has 30 times more vaccines than 130 countries in the world. Now, I'm not saying that to dismiss our problems. We have real problems. But the truth is, our world is in dire need. Myanmar had a coup. There's fighting in Ethiopia and Yemen and plenty of places in the world. Recently, I've been reading through a booklet uh, that's by this organization called Voice of the Martyrs. And it actually helps me every morning to pray for Christians who are right now being fined, imprisoned, tortured, and killed merely for reading the Bible. Doing exactly what you are doing right now, they have the threat of losing everything they love. So I, I feel like, you know, I can take a couple minutes and try and pray for them in the morning. Right? We are one global church. We are one family. I can pray for my brothers and sisters in another part of the world. If you're interested in learning more about it, that, check out Voice of the Martyrs. You can email me, uh, someone in our church uh, has sort of access to this little pamphlet thing. If, if you want access to it, I'm sure we can get it to you. I also want to just say, as, we, as I end, there are times, though, as I'm praying, especially globally, but even locally for really intense stuff, there are, there are moments when I feel like, God, what am I supposed to say? I'm sitting here in my comfortable little PG home and basically at this beach retreat sipping delicious coffee, unbelievably safe, praying for someone who is like really suffering in the world. What do I have to say? And I'm encouraged, actually, when I go back, I was reading uh, chapter 8 of Romans, and Paul seems to anticipate this. There will be times when we are praying when we're not sure what to pray. There will be times when maybe in this incongruity of me and the safety of my little bubble, praying for someone who is experiencing unbelievable suffering. I have no idea what to pray. Paul writes this. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. For when we do not know to pray as we ought, we don't know what to say. What am I supposed to say? He says this, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I think Paul is trying to tell us that as we carry the pain of the world into the presence of God, that God is not only with us in that place, but he prays with us 
for those things. Brothers and sisters, we do not carry the burden of the world. God does. And he invites us, I think, to make space in our lives amid all the distractions to be with him, caring for things that he loves that we might love them too. That we might be shaped into his image, conduits of his blessing in a broken and hurting world. God, we are broken creatures. God, we often do not know what to say. We are often distracted by many things. But God, I, I want, I think we want, God, I think we want to be a people who care about things that you care about. God, we want to be a people that care about injustice and pain and suffering in the world. God, give us the courage to make that space. Give us the strength to make that space. God, give us the humility to care about others a little bit more. Jesus, we ask that you would be with us. That as we turn to you, we would know you more. And God, that as we turn to you, you would be with us and crying out with us and even for us when we do not know what to pray. God, to you be all the glory and honor and praise forever and ever. Amen.